This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is January 18th, 2024. I'm Ian Bushfield, flying solo this week. Scott's got some personal business to attend to, so it'll be me for the next couple of weeks. I have some interviews lined up. On today's podcast, I speak to independent journalist Dustin Godfrey about the toxic drug crisis and the recent BC Supreme Court decision granting an injunction on the government's recent bill trying to prohibit drug use in certain public areas. It's a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. We cover a ton of ground. Make sure to also go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash politicoast, support the podcast, and help us build it up in advance of this year's election. Let's throw it over to that interview now. Joining me now on Politicoast is Dustin Godfrey, independent journalist formerly of... Oh, the Burnaby Beacon, the Burnaby Now. You've done some stuff for the Taiyi, I believe. You have your own newsletter. Shoot, I'm forgetting the name of it. The Bind. The Bind. Yes, <laughs> it's fantastic. Welcome to Politicoast. I believe we've had you on Canby Report in the past. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so this is, I guess, actually the first time on uh, Politicoast. Yeah. Well, welcome here. I wanted to have you because you've been writing a lot about the uh, toxic drug crisis and the politicization around it and the political responses. And given we just had this court ruling on an injunction over Bill 34, which we'll get into, it seems a real good time to really dig into this and where the province is at. To really understand that, though, I think we need to start with the decriminalization pilot that started about a year ago now, right? It started... Almost exactly. Like it would have been January 31st. I think it was the 31st of January. Might have been February 1st. Um, anyway, we're closing on pretty much exactly a year since uh, since the pilot project actually got its start. So remind me and our listeners again what that basically set out. Like what were the limits it set out? What does it hope to accomplish? And we'll go from there. Yeah, so uh, you know the 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 stated sort of intent of the of decriminalization is to decriminalize drug users and reduce stigma, and thereby sort of like reduce the number of people who are dying from overdoses because people are pushed into the shadows by criminalization uh, for using drugs and things like that. Um, and and there are a lot of other just sort of like negative impacts of criminalization that aren't just related to people dying from the toxic drug supply. Um, you know, having people going into jail because of drugs is, I, I, I think a lot of people nowadays kind of agree that that really isn't very productive. Um, or, and also it is just like extremely resource intensive, both in terms of like the, the spending on cops, spending on uh, incarceration is incredibly expensive, things like that when a lot of people are kind of recognizing that drug use is not really a criminal issue. And, you know, a lot of people talk about it saying, well, it's not a criminal issue, it's a healthcare issue. And there absolutely is a healthcare uh, component of it as well. But there's also economic, um, you know, uh, social, uh, economic inequality factors in there. It's 
there's a whole lot of other things. It's not as simple as just being a health issue, but in any case, the the, the point of it is to destigmatize drug users and to recruit, uh, remove these criminal penalties that, like I say, kind of drive people into um, uh, patterns of use that that contribute to you know rising overdose deaths as well as just kind of like really entrench people in poverty and these sort of destructive cycles of criminalization. Um, you know, this is like several years in the coming. People have been talking about decriminalization for a long time before this. Uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry had outlined, you know, I think, I don't remember exactly when it was, um, but she had outlined a sort of like path for decriminalization that the province could have followed on its own without requesting anything from uh, the federal government. But the provincial governments really can't. Um, they, they just, for their own reasons, did not want to follow that particular route. Um, you know, I think there are sort of complications around jurisdiction. Um, but the way that they kind of went about it, whether planned or not, is kind of convenient for them because the way that they did it was be, they, they requested an exemption from Health Canada for... Uh, you know, certain amounts of certain drugs, you know, decriminalizing or removing, uh, I think it's section 4.1 of the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. Um, and the way that the reason I say it's convenient is because it's not just the provincial government that is then sort of on the hook for any kind of blowback that comes out of it. It's the provincial government and the federal government that sort of like share responsibility for it. Um, but what the exemption ultimately says, and this is coming from Health Canada, it is uh, a cumulative um, 2.5 gram threshold for, um, and there's, there's a number of different drugs on this. There's opioids, there is uh, methamphetamine, there's, uh, I think, cocaine, MDMA, and, you know, kind of notably this excludes benzodiazepines which is interesting because they're and also uh, xylazine which bo both of those two things are increasingly sort of like infiltrating the supply of down and so it's unclear really how that that how that would factor into uh the decriminalization quote-unquote decriminalization um yeah i don't know it's a, like I said, it's a cumulative 2.5 gram threshold that a lot of drug users say is not anywhere near enough. The um, Prior to this, so the BC government made the application to Health Canada and in sort of like formulating their application to Health Canada, they sought input from, you know, a variety of different groups and drug users said that it you know they had asked for an 18 gram threshold and i i believe that there was some research that sort of like backed that up or at least some like researchers had kind of like i don't know if it was like actual like formal research or whatever if it or if it was more just kind of um i don't know researchers kind of saying that this like comports with what, what we hear from drug users in any case that 18 grams 
And I think that's 18 grams for each drug as well. It wasn't like a cumulative 18 grams. And that got whittled down. I think the provincial um, submission to the federal government was a cumulative 4.5 grams. Yeah. <laughs> cut down quite substantially. Um, and then the federal government cut that down again to 2.5 grams. And the reason that they cited for that was because cops. Um, law enforcement input basically they said that it should be lower and you know prior to all of this it was i think the like the federal or the national um association of chiefs of police had their sort of proposal for decriminalization and their suggestion was one gram because i don't know according to them the majority of their um drug seizures were under a gram or something like that and it's I think like anybody who has talked to anybody in the downtown east side would tell you that that is just like not a serious amount. Yeah, so they they have the limit on how much you can carry, two point five grams. They have the specific drugs you can carry, and you mentioned that it's not universal, so it's already not the free for all that it's kind of gotten painted in some more reactionary corners, and it's also not uh, geographically universal, right? There were always some. Uh, premises, you could still not have your drugs, schools, for example. And even that from Health Canada was expanded, correct? Yeah. So uh, the original exemption was like schools, daycares were um, still, you know, banned for drug possession, as well as I think like Coast Guard, uh, military bases, things like that. Um, and then, yeah, in September, there was the BC government had asked Health Canada to amend the exemption to include playgrounds uh, and it would be like 50 well so it wasn't just playgrounds it was playgrounds splash pads and skate parks and any like 50 meters from uh those particular spaces so yeah no it 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 was absolutely not like this sort of like free-for-all like that a lot of people are sort of characterizing it. And so despite it being illegal still to possess drugs as of September on playgrounds and splash pads, there was still a lot of political debate around this issue with mayors like Brad West and others saying they're using drugs in our parks, we need something to address this. And we saw the government introduce Bill 34 in the fall to deal with this, to address these concerns. Uh, this was framed as the Restricting Public Consumption of Illegal Substances Act with the idea of making it, uh, or at least giving police, I guess, the tools to address drug use in public spaces. But it uh, was controversial then, and it's controversial now as it was uh, enjoined by the courts most recently. So let's dig through this relatively actually short law and what it does. You want to take us through it, Dustin? Yeah, so it's, um, I think like five, eight pages somewhere in there. And it's um, like 13, four sections or so. And it's basically just kind of like defining places where people are not allowed to use drugs. And, you know, you, you, you it's kind of a, the, the, the sort of like justification for it was, you know, we have these laws that say where you can and cannot smoke in public. 
um, or where you can or cannot drink in public. I mean, with drinking, it's pretty much everywhere, except for in certain parks that are sort of defined by municipalities. But so, yeah, it, it's really kind of modeled after um, laws around where you can and cannot smoke. And, you know, uh, on first blush, that kind of sounds pretty reasonable because, you know, if you can't smoke cigarettes here, which is a legal substance, then, you know, why should you be able to use drugs or whatever in this place? And the the sort of thing about it is that the places that you cannot use are quite sweeping. So it includes the playgrounds. It's, there's some overlap between the Health Canada exemption from September and this law that came in or was introduced, I think, beginning of October, where... Um, you know, they both say that you cannot use drugs or possess drugs within, uh, I, I think the law is actually more about using drugs. It's not about possessing and I, I'm not, um, yeah. And yeah, so it says that you can't use drugs within 50 meters of a playground, splash pad, um, or skate park, as well as kind of all these other places. It's like, you know, six meters from a public door or window or six meters from a bus stop, um, and things like that and like the when you when you kind of look at like a lot of the places that people use drugs like you know you think about Hastings Street that's pretty much the entire sidewalk there people would have to either be using in the middle of the street i don't think drivers would like that <laughs> um or in alleyways and that's exactly what laws like this are intended like what uh, what decriminalization was intended to stop was to give people the ability to sort of like not be pushed into the shadows. Um, it also banned people, I think using in parks as well. Um, and yeah, so it's like I say, quite sweeping ban on where people can and can. Yeah. And one of the praises of the bill I saw from like BC United's critic, uh, Elaine Sturko was that there's kind of a, two-step process here first the police have to give direction to someone that they believe has a reasonable ground to give direction to someone they have reasonable grounds to believe is consuming or recently consumed an illegal substance to stop and or leave the place and so if they don't leave they can be arrested uh and they can also take and take their drugs too, or have their drugs confiscated. Uh, yeah, yeah. And you know, I, I saw some lawyer from uh, Victoria saying that the law was kind of toothless because of this, because it's like, well, you know, it, all it does is tell people that they have to move along or whatever, and it doesn't give the police the power to arrest them. Which, like, that's not really the point. The point is that people are kind of constantly being told to move along and constantly being sort of displaced. And the other thing is that, you know, police, giving police the sort of discretion to say, like, okay, they, they, they approach somebody who is maybe using drugs in a park. And they tell that person that they have to move along or stop using drugs. How long does that police officer have to, or, you know, or they suspect that this person has recently used drugs and tell them to move along? Like, how long does that person have to, uh, to actually move along? Like, are they allowed to gather their stuff? Are they allowed to, like, 
there, there's a lot of sort of like discretion, I think, afforded to police. And a lot of the times when police have discretion, uh, so you th- think about things like carding or um, sort of like stock and frisk type policies, those very frequently are sort of targeting um, black and indigenous people. And it's, yeah, I don't know. It, it just kind of like, it gives, it gives police a lot of power to decide who is and who isn't sort of a criminal for not moving along, not being sort of like constantly pushed along to a new place. And like I say, if, if you're, if you're making this, if you're giving police this power, not just in say like a park or some parks, but kind of just about anywhere where people are going to use in public, that is really, you know, like I say, it's going to really negatively impact a lot of people. And the people who are kind of most impacted by that, again, black and indigenous people, they're, they're, you know, more likely to hide their drug use in say like a bush in like a hidden corner of a park or in an alley or, um, you know, alone in an SRO or something like that. And, you know, a a lot of people say, well, you know, we don't want people using drugs in public and especially around kids and things like that. And like, it's not entirely like if, 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 if that's your goal, then the thing that you need to do is give people places that they Mm -hmm. can use drugs in. Right. Because otherwise you're just kind of pushing specifically unhoused people into corners where they're more likely to, if they were, if they were to overdose, not be found in time by, uh, you know, a peer who has naloxone or by paramedics or by somebody who can call paramedics or things like that. Right. So it's, it is a policy that sort of like just really pushes people. It really, the, the the entire point of this sort of like decriminalizing the de- de- decriminalization project was to not push people into the shadows and what this is doing is pushing people into the shadows yeah it's kind of undermining a right to space especially for people who don't have space like those who are unhoused uh those who have precarious living situations or live alone where they don't want to use by themselves because it's wildly unsafe with the supply that is horribly tainted and toxic you know and it comes back in a similar way to that uh, other bill that came through rather controversially uh, the miscellaneous statutes amendment act number four one of these bills that i always love because they're usually like trivial things like oh we need to update some like ors and ands in the bills and whatever fine but in this one they define the availability of shelter and this got criticized on both sides from being too restrictive and not restrictive enough uh, and follows a series of court cases. Uh, Abbotsford, I know, was pretty prominent where cities try to uh, evict homeless camps or tent uh, camps to reopen parks to the public. But the courts have found that if there's not a reasonable alternative shelter in place, then they have to wait and provide that. And so the courts have disagreed on what that definition means, and the province tried to helpfully give a definition, only the definition seemed to have taken a lower bar than most of the court decisions have done, at least under my reading. 
Yeah, I remember listening to a podcast. I don't know if you listen to the Big Story podcast. Um, it's like one of those sort of like daily podcasts. And I think it's like uh, the Frequency Network, which may be owned by Rogers. I'm not really positive. But anyway, um, they had a uh, law professor from UBC who has kind of like studied some of this. Um, like the has studied sort of like the legal aspect of um, of sort of like injunctions against uh, homeless encampments, and the way that he sort of described this bill was that basically like a twenty four hours Tim Hortons would fit the description of adequate shelter that is set forth by this bill, and it's you know like you say it. it, it it's kind of wild, especially, you know, in the context of like the last few weeks when it's been a polar vortex or whatever they want to call it, you know, whatever the, the, the meteorologists are, are, are branding this particular cold snap. Um, and you have park rangers who are going into uh, parks and basically stealing people's stuff. They're taking their uh, tents, their personal belongings um maybe jackets maybe sentimental items you know you hear stories about people losing like family members ashes for instance in these sort of street sweeps and it's it's to put such a low bar for that kind of a thing to happen i think is just really kind of abhorrent and just like really dehumanizing for a lot of people who are already sort of like people who are impacted by dehumanization of homelessness, right? And the way that that sort of like ripples throughout their sort of lives. And yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think it is actually like really interesting that you kind of like it, it, the, the, the parallels between the, the um, sort of like decampment uh, decision. And yeah, it was from Abbotsford in like 2015, 13, somewhere in there, the, mid 2010s where they they were kind of saying that like okay if you don't actually have a space for people to go you can't really displace them and kind of seems to be the exact same thing that's happening here like it is very like very close parallel where it's like you you can't you or at least you shouldn't be able to we'll we'll see what the court where the court actually lands on this um but you shouldn't be able to like displace drug users from everywhere um, unless they have like a supervised consumption site or over, uh, overdose prevention site to be able to move on to. So moving forward and talking about the courts and building off of that, we see this group, the Harm Reduction Nurses Association, bring forward a constitutional challenge to Bill 34, the uh, drugs in parks and everywhere <laughs> bill. And as part of that, they called for an injunction on the bill to enjoin it and not allow it to be in place and used until the full arguments have been heard. That was ruled on, as I talked about earlier and mentioned in last week's podcast uh, at the start of this month. Let's talk a little bit. Are you familiar with this group at all? Uh, I'm aware of them. I don't really know too, too much about them, but yeah, like I say, I, I am aware of them. I mean, they've been sort of active for a little bit uh, over the last several years. Um, you know, as far as I'm aware, like mainly sort of from an advocacy sort of stance, but yeah, I don't know. It's actually kind of interesting. I'd, I'd, uh, spoken to, uh, one of the lawyers involved in this case about like the choice of using, 
the Harm Reduction Nurses Association as the sort of like named plaintiff in this lawsuit. And yeah, sort of the thing that she was saying was like, well, you know, there there is like sort of a hazard to a vulnerable person, like or a marginalized person being the named person in a particular lawsuit because, you know, that sort of like opens them up to uh, you know, harassment by police or by others, but to vigilante sort of violence, which really is, that is a kind of thing that happens against uh, unhoused people. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I remember working in uh, Penticton way back in my early career and like kind of hearing about a lot of things like that happening. Um, and, you know, you don't hear about it because speaking up about it opens you up to more of it, right? Um. And yeah, so it's, it is, there is that aspect of it. And I, I, um, if I recall correctly, Caitlin Chain is the person that I had spoken to, uh, from Pivot Legal Society. And she had said that this is like a thing that the, the court actually like recognizes that like it, th there is sort of like a hazard to having a, um, marginalized person be that sort of like named plaintiff. Um, but the other sort of like aspect of it is like, it, it also just sort of like recognizes the fact that, that it isn't just like th there are rippling effects of criminalizing people throughout sort of society. And, you know, there's like secondary effects on the people who work with unhoused people, unhoused drug users. And if people are sort of pushed into the shadows and they, you know, they, they, they die from a, from the toxic drug supply and, you know, because somebody isn't able to reach them in time, things like that, that has a really detrimental effect on the, the, um, the, uh, you know, mental health of the people who are trying to serve them as, as, you know, in the case of, uh, the HRNA, the, uh, the nurses who do like outreach, uh, healthcare work as well as like social workers and things like that. So yeah, it is sort of like it, I, th I think using the harm reduction nurses association in this particular lawsuit, um, you know, there, there may be sort of a, um, uh, concern that, okay, well, that the court will say, well, okay, th this harm is not necessarily as, um, isn't necessarily like, mm -hmm. it's more sort of squishy or whatever. It's not like this concrete thing that you can sort of measure as much as you can with the direct impact on the people who are impacted by this, by these, uh, by this bill. But it, I think kind of allows you to sort of talk about that as well as sort of expanding the framework and saying that it isn't just that there, there are all kinds of different impacts of this law. Yeah. There's kind of a tangential issue here that I'm, you know, fascinated personally and professionally with my work with the Humanist Association around this like question of standing in human rights cases for exactly the point you mentioned is a lot of the cases I've looked at whether they're to deal with religion and government or drug use and things like this is, it can be very hard and challenging to bring this as an individual. But if a nonprofit can stand in place of it, um, we can advance some of these laws and it was the big decision was actually just a couple of years ago canadian or the council of canadians with disabilities at the supreme court of canada that kind of set the broadening scope of uh how public interest interveners can actually get 
standing to bring these kind of lawsuits forward. And, you know, it's not an open door because that has uh, challenges for the justice system as a whole to function if every random nonprofit can sue for anything they want. But I think they established in this case that, like you say, um, these are nurses who work in the downtown east side with drug users. And if they now have to go into danger, more dangerous places, that has an effect on them and also the people they're working with. So I'm glad to see they got the standing in this case. Yeah, and impact like also just like yeah, and just like impacts their ability to actually like get out to uh, the people that they're trying to work with, right? Like it, it hinders their ability to even just do their work. And so they applied for an injunction, which is a preliminary step in a court case where they haven't actually heard the whole constitutional argument. But they had to establish that there is a real and pressing harm that would happen from the bill, and they established that. Yeah, yeah, and so this one is like it's—I think it's called an interlocutory injunction. So it's a very—it's a—it's a temporary injunction um, that is—it runs up at the end of March, and the intention is hopefully that it will um, uh, will be heard before that runs up that the actual court case will be heard by then it seems to me like that seems very quick because the law just came into place in october and um civil court cases are pretty notoriously slow like in criminal court they have like a certain amount of time that they that like has to a a a court case basically has to wrap up within a certain amount of time with like provincial court i think it's two years and then with supreme court it's like 30 months or something like that and so if it doesn't wrap up before then um then the the case can be tossed out because of you know access to justice and things like that um in the case of civil court there is no you know uh maximum amount amount of time for a court case to run up and so you know, with particularly large court cases, those can run for like a decade plus, right? <laughs> or like multiple decades, I think. There's some that probably run that long. Um, in this case, you know, I doubt that it would be that long, but it, but, you know, six months or whatever seems really fast to me. That being said, um, you know, I, I, I guess an interlocutory injunction is sort of like a, a first step and if need be then they could apply for a more sort of like uh, uh an injunction until it is heard and that would be a little bit more indefinite a little bit more of like a uh i think a bar to clear to actually be able to get that because of its sort of like indefinite uh time span and so i think part of the hope is from the lawyers uh, on the sides uh, on the side of the uh, harm reduction nurses association is that they won't like even if it doesn't get heard by then that it won't necessarily need to be heard like that they won't necessarily need to that the government will just kind of acknowledge that like okay they lost that injunction so maybe they should just wait <laughs> um, to implement it um, but yeah so the the, the court did hear or did find that there is a sort of like on balance of probabilities that there is a, uh, you know, uh, could be irreparable harm from this law. And with any kind of like injunction, that's a pretty, it's certainly a lower 
bar than it will be for like actually like de- making the final sort of determination on the law itself. Um, and that's sort of like part of the complaints that people are making about the decision is like, oh, well, they just like so they the the government's sort of like defense against the claims that the HRNA was making was a lot of their evidence was sort of like anecdotal or things like that hearsay or whatever. I don't know if hearsay is actually the the term that they would have used, but um, it's and not necessarily like grounded in research or things like that. That's not like there, there is um, some research I think that was, that was talked about, but the, uh, judge said, well, even if that is true, we have this, uh, death review panel from the BC coroner service that kind of backs up what they're saying. And that to my mind, my mind being the judge's mind, um, is enough to grant this injunction, this, uh, temporary injunction. And yeah, a, a lot of people had some complaints about the judge just kind of like relying on that one sort of document to approve this. When, you know, a, a lot of this, a lot of that is very sort of alarmist because, like I say, it's temporary. It is a low, it's like necessarily a low bar to clear because it's so temporary. And in this case, it's like a three month decision. And yeah, so the the judge kind of said like, you know, this this BC coroner service, the 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 coroner the the death review panel and this isn't the one that just came out in uh uh October or November um whenever it was that that had come out. Uh this was I think from 2022 that they had done uh, another death review panel. I think that was the second one. And so I I think it is pretty interesting that when the actual sort of case does get heard, they'll probably hear more from the the third death review panel, which I think was like a step further, even in some of the recommendations, particularly around like a demedicalized safe supply, but that's a little bit uh, off track. Um, but yeah, so it's, it was pretty striking though, to my mind to, to read the, the decision where the, the court was kind of listing off some of the claims that the, uh, the plaintiffs were making where they were kind of laying the groundwork for uh, decriminalization and safe supply and talking about the negative impacts of interactions with police um, where they were talking about how, you know, the, the judge at, some, at a certain point says, um, you know, the plaintiff is arguing that uh, it's that the primary driver of this, of, of, you know, all these people who are dying, I think it's like 13,000 people so far from the toxic drug crisis since 2016 who have died. The primary driver of that is from a toxic drug supply. And I accept that, which is, you know, again, it is an injunction uh, and a temporary injunction. So like the, the um, sort of like standing power of that for say like influencing future uh, decisions isn't, um, like it, it's not people, I, I don't think like future judges are going to say this judge accepted that. And therefore that is sort of like the precedent, but it's still pretty striking to see a judge just kind of like listing all these points that are basically the, like the basis of decriminalization and safe supply and saying, and I accept yeah, this. And that final kind of, uh, 
part of the test on this uh, ruling is to try to go on the balance of convenience, right? So they've established the harms that could happen, but they also have to consider in considering whether to uh, grant this injunction, whether those harms are on one side of the scale versus like the importance of the act that is actually given a lot of deference and presumptions by the court at this stage, you know, are those harms worse than letting it go through because the government does have a point to go through this. And, you know, they argue about, um, and they cite some uh, work from the cops as well about public dangers to public drug or dangers to public drug use, like littered needles and those kind of things that, you know, we hear quite regularly uh, in the media. And the judge accepts those at this stage because the ballot, you know, the requirement for evidence here and getting to what you were kind of saying there isn't as high. It's very early stage. Like all the facts haven't been argued and established. We're just trying to get a sense of like, if we, if we don't grant this injunction, will, will people probably die? <laughs> Would that be bad? And here they go, like, there are things about this law that seem like there's a valid point to, which I don't think anyone has denied. But whether it's, you know, the ultimate um, necessity is what's a key. And here's where the judge kind of comes back and sees that ultimately, the balance still sides with needing to act in this uh, public health emergency and that the effort to roll this back doesn't really seem to help with that. Yeah, it's like, like you say, the, the, and I, I think the court sort of like has an obligation to assume that the law is coming in in good faith and things like that. And they have to sort of like accept that there is a reason that the, 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 um, the province brought in the law in the first place and it's kind of up to the plaintiffs to show that there is sort of a either a bad faith reason for it or that it would do more harm than good and i think that the latter is kind of more the case that the the plaintiffs were making here um but yeah like you say like the 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 judge kind of acknowledges arguments from the um from the plaintiffs or sorry the, from the, the the government saying you know there there are real harms from public drug use things like uh, needles on the ground and like you say it, i don't i don't think anybody really wants people using drugs like anywhere and everywhere people want places for drug users to be able to go and use drugs right people want people people want people to be able to use safely for everybody right and the way that the the um, sort of like the, the way the things sort of work now is that it's like, or the way that the that I think a lot of people sort of talk about it is that the um, that drug users are sort of like given free reign to use wherever, whenever, however, and it just like. First of all, it's not the case as we already kind of mentioned. There are already restrictions and. A lot is put, a lot of rhetoric is put into the playgrounds. And, you know, there's a reason for that. It's because it's that moral panic that people are sort of like trying to stir up fear for children, which is like a very reasonable thing to be fearful for because children are very vulnerable. But like when, when the, when Health Canada brought 
in the amendment that bans drug use within 15 meters of um, of playgrounds, nobody really said anything. Like when the in the in the court decision, the or in, they they kind of cite the province arguing that um. Uh, to kind of read from the, the decision, actually, it says, I, I reject the submission, however, that the application before me is to permit people who use drugs to use drugs, quote, nearly wherever they want. Um, it is not asserted by the plaintiff that the province cannot pursue any law or policy on the matter in issue. Like nobody's saying that you can't really regulate where drugs are used. And that's kind of, again, evidenced by the fact that nobody really batted an eye when that sort of playground ban was bought, brought in in September. The issue is very much about how sweeping the ban is and about the sort of like powers that are sort of given to police. And like the thing that kind of like strikes me about the powers that are given to police in this or like the way that the, that it sort of like plays out is the BC government talks about or has kind of like spent the entire last couple of years since they sort of announced their um, uh, application to Health Canada for this exemption was, you know, we wanted to criminalize drug users. And like they're really sort of like putting the emphasis on decrim- like on, on the, the people who use drugs. And what kind of winds up happening with this is that you're decriminalizing the drugs while criminalizing the drug user. <laughs> um. And so that's kind of really like the core of what is at issue here and sort of like to go back to the issue of like bill 45, it's just, there's, and, and, and to sort of like broaden like the whole sort of conversation, it it all sort of like comes back to this position of there are certain people who do, who exist in public and that is kind of their crime is existing in public And it's kind of hard to like extricate that from colonialism where, you know, since the sort of like project of Canada has been a thing, indigenous people were displaced and given who is most affected by being unhoused and who is kind of like told who is, who's affected by these laws and kind of like constantly told to move along and things like that mainly indigenous people and black people and other, you know, racialized people, it's hard not to see that this is just sort of like a continuation of that. And so I guess the next steps for this court case are to actually hear the full arguments around the facts, around the constitutionality. Uh, Then there's the one to 12 months for the justice to actually come up with their decision. There's no formal timeline on that as far as I know, but they're never usually that quick. Uh, I just went through a Supreme Court hearing on a civil matter as an intervener, and that result came in, I think, three or four months. We were actually surprised it was as early as it was. Um, yeah. Yeah. So maybe they're getting better at some of these, or maybe it was a cut and dry case where he's like, screw it. I already know what I want to say. Uh, like three or four months after the hearing? Oh, Okay. Yeah, I know with like usually with like criminal cases, and that's kind of like where a lot of my sort of experience with reporting on is, um, you know, usually with with like reporting on civil cases, you're 
not really like taught like I, I've never really kind of gotten into like the process and like attended hearings and, you know, it's like followed it from beginning to end. You sort of like mm-hmm. report on it when the lawsuit is filed and then you report on it when the decision is sort of reached. And so, yeah, you don't really get like a, as much of a picture of like the sort of like how the process unfolds. But yeah, my experience with like criminal court is usually, you know, de- depending on the complexity of the case, a, a, a decision might come the same day as the hearing or within a month or two, right? But yeah, there really is no like limit on how long it can take for criminal court to, or for, uh, civil court to go through. And like, yeah, I, I can't imagine how frustrating that must be for people who are sort of entangled in that. And especially in, in a case like this, where it is like, it is for a lot of people kind of life or death, right? Yeah. And then there's always the option to appeal. I mean, even this injunction could be appealed. And I know there's been questions around the province appealing that do you have a sense of where that's sitting right now i haven't heard i'm not sure that like they have really it 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 seems to me that it would be kind of weird for them to appeal it given that it is only like two and a half months now until it sort of lapses anyway um i don't know i guess there could be some sort of like symbolic importance where they can say oh well you know if you if you wanted to get like an interlocutor or a, a, a more indefinite injunction then it's going to be harder to do that if we succeed in an appeal or something like that but i don't know i, I think they're they're sort of like stuck in a uh between a, a, a rock and a hard place in a sense where it's like um they are really facing a lot of uh criticism from the right about this decision and a lot of fear-mongering about um about public drug use and then on the other hand like you know i i've talked to like a, a lot of people on the left who are just like so disenfranchised or so disillusioned by the ndp at this point that like you you, you kind of wonder how much they want to push something like this and like risk sort of like alienating their own base mm. so yeah i don't know it's it's I, it, it seems unlikely to me that they would really push it. Well, let's end on maybe, I don't want to call it an optimistic hope because it's not really happening, but what are the things that should be happening, I guess? Like, what is the path forward? We mentioned a little bit about safe supply, about the need for um, safe spots to actually consume. Like, one of the things I know you've pointed out is, like, Brad West, mayor of Coquitlam, has been a huge critic of this decision. Uh but there's no safe consumption sites in the city of Port Coquitlam. Yeah. Or I think like any of the tri cities. Um, and so if he's like complaining about all these people suddenly using drugs in his, in the playgrounds there, like there's a pretty simple solution to that. Get a safe consumption site or a, or an overdose prevention site or whatever, like give people a place to use drugs and that's, and then they will use it. Uh, or, you know, a lot of them will use drugs there, right? Because it's just safer. And yeah, I don't know. I, I I think a really important aspect of it as well is just like, uh, if we're seeing, if we're seeing a rise in people in public drug use, it's, it seems unlikely to me that it has any, it has much, if anything, to do with decriminalization and a lot 
to do with increasing homelessness and the fact that like so many people just do not have a place to go or a home to, you know, to, to do whatever it is that they want to do in. Right. And so, yeah, I don't know. It's addressing the housing crisis is I think a huge part of it as well. Obviously, you know, using a loan with a toxic drug supply is also really dangerous so there is also the issue of addressing the toxic drug supply and um at least for a lot of 2023 20, uh, there was sort of declining rates of people who were on a prescribed safer supply um and that is also a really big problem and i think that's part of why um the drug user liberation front was running its compassion club until it got shut down in october and they are, you know, they're, 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 that's a whole other sort of like court case that's kind of going through uh, through the courts at this point. They were supposed to have their first appearance uh, on the 16th, but the uh, prosecutors had asked for some more time, which, you know, that, that, that could mean that they're sort of acknowledging the complexity of whether it's in the public interest to actually prosecute this or not. Um. You know, it'd be it would be kind of nice to see them not prosecute what even David Eby seemed to acknowledge as a life-saving service. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I don't know. A, a big part of it is really this sort of it's it's a multi-pronged approach that involves housing. It involves safe supply. It, it involves giving uh, increasing services like. Uh, overdose prevention sites um you know again on the topic of uh Dolph, they actually so it's they also have another sort of court case going through where they had applied for a health uh, health canada exemption as well to be able to run the compassion club and they were denied and that's when they started doing it you know outside of the law and they but at the same time they have a judicial review of uh, that decision by Health Canada. And so that I think is going to be heard in March. So that's something to look forward to as well to see where the sort of courts lie well, on that. Dustin, we've covered a ton of ground and you've been super generous with your time. I thought this might be like a 30 minute interview and we've gone 50 already. So I don't want to keep you too long. I know you got lots of work to do. Uh, is there anything we didn't cover on these issues that you want to get in before I give you a chance to plug all of your pluggables? Yeah, cool. Where can people find you if they want to keep following your work? No, I think we pretty much covered it. That was, that was pretty thorough. I uh, can find me on uh, TikTok occasionally at and also Twitter. Both of those are at DustBobGod. Uh, it's Dustin Robert Godfrey, but shortened all three of them to DustBobGod. Uh, or you can find me my work at uh, thebind.ca. Occasionally write for Filter Magazine as well. I wrote about the um, the Dolph rally that happened on the 16th uh, for Filter as well. So, yeah. Thank you so much. Have a great afternoon. Enjoy the snow. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we'll do. You too. <laughs> and that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Polytoast is a production of Legend Boot Media. 
and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening. Thank you.